using utilizing for the videos for our um, Bible survey, they actually refer to covenants as the backbone of the Bible. And I really like that term. So today we're going to talk about five major covenants. Five major covenants. Um, so first we're going to talk about Adam and Eve. And honestly, Adam and Eve isn't one of those major covenants. But Adam and Eve is kind of like the catalyst for everything that follows. Because Adam and Eve had a a one-on-one -on -one relationship with God. They were in the garden with him, and they got to commune with him in a way that really people have not been able to since that moment in the garden. And they made a decision to break relationship with God, and their decision to break relationship with God by, by sinning, inviting sin into existence, into our world, really has put us on a path that we need the covenants. We need, need these agreements with God because it's God's way of trying to repair that broken relationship that Adam and Eve broke. And, and really, so that's really what, as we look at these covenants, we need to see the, the redemptive value. We need to see the redemptive promise that is in them. So the first major, the first major covenant is the Noahic covenant, and that's found in Genesis chapter 9. And I'm just going to be honest with you, I'm really going to just skim over these right now. So the Noahic covenant is if you remember the the story of Noah, God um, God flooded the earth. Noah had Noah preached for I think it's approximately 120 years before the flood actually happened. The flood happens, uh, people are wiped out. They float in the water, and then when the boat finally hits solid ground, what happens? There's a rainbow, and what does it say? It's a moment where God is promising to Noah, "I'm not going to destroy the world again until everything is restored." And I'm sure there's times God's been like, man, if only I said, you know, I'll only destroy this part of the world. But some of you guys might understand if you've ever played a video game, there's that moment you're like, oh, I'm hitting the reset button. This game just ain't playing fair at all. So <laughs> if you've played a video game, you know exactly. Or you, never mind, I could go down a rabbit hole that I stopped myself going down. So, and, and really... Noah, the Noah covenant is, uh, follows this idea of the royal grant. God says, I'm not going to do this. And all he asks us to do is to be faithful. There's no give or take on this. And if you look at it, the way that, why it follows this is if you look at what happened on the Tower of Babel, just a, a few generations after this moment where God had already, the people had already started living a life of evil again. To the point where God's like, all right, I'm going to mix up their languages, and I'm going to send them across the world. Um, so the next major um, covenant is the Abrahamic covenant, and that's found in Genesis chapter 12. And what does God say? He says, I'm going to make you a great nation and bless the world through you. And he, what Abraham had to do for this is he had to follow God. And he, he follows him, and he follows him through the different, sorry, he follows him um, out of the land of Ur and hands up into the, the middle, um, well, he ends up with his family in Egypt, but there's a time where he traveled all through the Middle East. And so the big thing is, it's the, the covenant between God and Abraham, and he's telling Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And this is really where we start to see more of the, lay, the groundwork for this covenant of restoration. Because he says, I'm going to bless the world through your family. And when we think about what the world would have looked like had Adam and Eve not sinned, the world would have been in a harmony. There wouldn't have been the need for restoration. There wouldn't have been the need for a redemptive event to happen. Everyone would have been blessed through that. So, and now the, the major, 
the one we talk about covenants, the one that people think about almost is called the, the, Mosaic, the Moses covenant, or it's also referred to as the Sinai covenant, because it, it's the moment which Moses was on the mountain, and he receives the, the covenant or the Ten Commandments from God, and then he lays out, when he comes down the mountain, he lays out how the tabernacle is supposed to be, how the camp is supposed to be set out, the different types of sacrifices, the different types of way. This is more of your standard give-and-take relationship. This is more, this is the law. And I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into this because the New Covenant speaks directly to the, Mosaic, the, the Moses Covenant or the Sinai Covenant. So when we talk about the, no, the New Covenant, I'm going to talk more about this. And then there's the Davidic Covenant, which you can find primarily in 2 Samuel verse, um, chapter 7. And God promises that he's a, there's going to be a descendant of David on the throne forever. And so that's really... That, that's the, I just gave a very, very, very quick snapshot of four of the five major covenants. <coughs> but the place we're going to spend the rest of today is in the New Covenant. And the New Covenant, I'm going to reference out of uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 12. Um, so I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then we're going to break it down. For if that that first covenant, and when he, when it says when it mentions first covenant, it's we're speaking directly to the Mosaic or the or the Sinai covenant, had been faultless, there would not have been no there would have been no occasion to look for the second, for he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other and they shall not teach each other his neighbor and each other's brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So, Hebrews chapter 8. This large portion here is quoted directly, if you were to look in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, it is a direct quote from that passage. So, Jeremiah wrote this, and here, the writer of Hebrews, and by, just going to take a, a sidetrack here, the book of Hebrews is called the Hebrews because the intended audience was those Jews that had converted to Christianity. So when we're talking about this passage in Jeremiah, the group of people that would have received this letter knows this passage. They may have even had it memorized because it would have been part of their, their training. They would have understood exactly what the author of Hebrews is trying to get at. That's why he pulled directly from the book of Jeremiah to make this promise. Now, there's some argument about who the author is, and I'm not going to really dig into that because that's a whole separate subject. A lot of people attribute it to Paul, but it doesn't actually match the style that Paul writes in. So there's a lot of discussion about that. But the thing that we need to understand is the reason this author chose this passage is because he's writing to a very similar-minded people that Jeremiah was writing to in the Old Testament. He was writing to a group of believers that were looking for hope. And he was writing to a group of people that were wondering exactly what this all means. Jeremiah was pointing towards the future, because remember, we just 
talked about this in, in I believe it was, uh, we were talking streams and rivers in, in, the, in the wilderness when we were looking at Jeremiah. It was a sad time because they were in exile. And so they were looking for hope. And Jeremiah's like, hey, there's a new covenant coming. It's all this is going to be made right. And here the writer of Hebrews is like, hey, know how we were talking about that new covenant all the way back in Jeremiah? I'm jumping ahead a little bit, and, but Jesus, he's the one fulfilling that new covenant. So that's really the point of what this author is trying to do. So um, to get back into this, it, it's when we talk about something new and we're looking at it, we think um, sometimes we can fall into that. It, it, think of, it happens a lot this time of year when um, they're trying to sell stuff for Christmas and they slap a new and improved on the side of, on a sticker. It's the same toy that was out last year. It was the same toy that was out five years ago. They just slapped a new and improved sticker on it. They had extra ones in the warehouse. No, the new here, this is something, this is changed. This is new and improved. The new covenant, <coughs> the actual the word in Greek for new can be nuos or neos. But the, and that just means something newness in regarding a time. But the ancient Greek, um, kainos, it's K-A-I-N-O-S. The word used here, the word that was chosen specifically, and that's, that's something else. When, like, when you dig into scripture, and when you like read with a study Bible or if you read with a commentary, sometimes you'll get little nuances because we can use the word new to describe five different things. But a, a writer in, in the Greek or a writer in the Hebrew, they have like five or six, and it could be one or two, but they have multiple choices for a word to use. And oftentimes they choose a specific word because they're trying to get a specific idea across. So when we talk about this idea of new, the author could have chose several words, but he chose this word here. And in the ancient Greek, it means something that is not in new, to, not only new in reference to time, but it's new in its quality. It isn't simply new, it's replacing it with something brand new. There's a change. It just, just isn't new. It's something that has overcome or su superseded something that was in the past. Sorry. So... Um, as we're looking at this idea of the covenant, as we're looking at this idea, the Lord made it clear that this covenant would originate with God and not with man. At Sinai, the old covenant was the key words, if you. If you look in Exodus and you read through what the old, the old covenant was, and starting in chapter 19 of Exodus is where you see the Ten Commandments given, it always says, if you, if you do this, I will do this. If you do this, I will do this. But when you read the new covenant, God is putting the onus on himself. He says, I will. So God has placed this. It's more on him that this will happen through him. And when you, make, when you look at the old covenant, really the best way to think about it, or not the best way, but one way to think about it is it was very heavy on works. It was very heavy on you have to go and sacrifice. You have to go and make sure that you hold these, these rituals and these rules and you follow them and if you don't, there's a, a required sacrifice, and there's different types of things. It was very based on what you do. The relationship, act, uh, the relationship aspect of it was not there. So, uh, I just combined two points. So, the new covenant, the new covenant is, as you look at it, he says specifically it's going to be with Israel and all of Israel. But we need to also read into it that it's not just Israel, it is all of us. 
this is not replacement theology. We do not replace Israel. Israel is still God's chosen people. We just need to understand that. What has happening is we are that extended blessing. Remember when God told Abraham, he says, I will bless the world through your family. That's what we are getting. We are getting that extended blessing. We are getting that extendedness, that, that, that beyond, that, that opportunity. Because if you look just in, just in the New Testament, um, Jesus was out ministering, and there was this Canaanite woman that came to him and was begging him to heal his daughter. And Jesus says, I've been sent to the Jews. And her response was, and, and he says, and his response, it, it seems kind of harsh, but there's a greater point that he's making. He says, would I give food from the table to a dog? And so the, the Canaanite woman, she, she responds, but she's like, but the dog eats the crumbs that falls on the floor. And Jesus is, hears exactly what she's saying, and he, I think, I wasn't there, I think he was trying to make a greater point to the people around him. And he says, your faith has made your daughter well. It was because she had so much faith in Jesus that she wouldn't, she wouldn't stop seeking help from him. He was showing that these things will bless everyone. And then when we talk about in Acts chapter 8 or chapter 1 verse 8 when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, what's he says? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then again in um, Romans 1, it talks about um, and when Paul's writing, he says that it's first to the Jew and then to the, the Greek or to the Gentile. See, the message is going further and further and further. We're all under this new covenant this fulfilled promise. And then going back to the verse, it says, uh, because they did not continue in my covenant. The weakness of the old covenant was not the covenant itself. The weakness was in the inability of man. The reason the old covenant didn't work was because they did not continue. You know, throughout the Bible, and I, I said this, we see God's redemptive plan. And it's all, it's, you see it in, in each of the covenants, as I said before. But God's plan of redemption came through and was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament passages announced that the new covenant, you see it in Ezekiel. There's several, there's several times when the writer uh, of Ezekiel talks about the new covenant with promises to gather Israel to the cleansing and the spiritual transformation and the forever reign of a Messiah. The new covenant was promised and needed because Israel did not and could not keep the covenant God had made with them on Sinai. You see, there's, one, there's another quote that I want to read. I'm going to read a couple more, but this one. The old covenant had taken, had taken a new lease of, of life in Jeremiah's days when the lost book of the covenant was found and read and affirmed to become the blueprint of Josiah's continuing reformation. Yet everything that we have read in Jeremiah confirms that the law made nothing perfect. For the response was skin deep and died with the death of Joshua. So I just, I'm going to reread the last sentence because I want you to grasp what he's saying when he's talking about when in Jeremiah, when we're looking at this passage, Josiah had just found the book of the law and was, was starting a, a restoration within the people. And they were, as they were looking at it, and there was, there was hope Jeremiah is saying, this isn't going to be it. Yet everything we have read in Jeremiah confirms the law made nothing perfect. One of the aspects of the law was it pointed out our inability to keep the law. 
and, and I want you to think about that. God was holy, and he called us to be holy, and so he set these standards, and he knew that we would not be able to keep the standards, and it's not because God's mean. It's because God is holy, and he wants us to be holy, so he wants us to come up to his standards. I can remember specifically in school that I, there was two teachers. There was one in college, uh, one of my professors. He was the hardest professor I've ever, ever took a class from. I had a class with him at 7.30 in the morning, which I do not function well at 7.30 in the morning, and really no one did, and so he would reward the class if you made it to every single class and didn't sleep. Um, you would actually get two actual bonus points on your grade, which is absolutely incredible, and so did I go to class with the flu? Yes, I did, because I was getting those two points, but he was the hardest teacher. The way he would grade a paper Man, I would rewrite that paper two or three times before I turned it in. I took two more classes from that man because I learned so much from him because his standard was so high, it, it challenged me to excel. I wanted to do well. I, I studied harder. I worked, worked tougher for that class because his standard was so high. I had a teacher in high school. She was my English teacher. Um, all her tests were essay tests which my hand would ache whenever I was finished with those tests. But she would challenge me. She wanted us as a class to do better, so her tests were harder. And for me personally, that type of challenge, to know that the standard is high, it makes me want to excel. And that's kind of what God's doing. He says the standard is high. I want you to try and reach this. I know you're not going to be able to reach this, so I'm creating a pathway too. And that's why the sacrificial system was put in place. The law shows that we can't meet God's standard. So sacrifices were made so that that standard could be, could be justified or we could, we could see some level of that. I see that so, and then the response was only skin deep and died with the death of Joshua. If you remember at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua challenges the people, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of the Canaanites over the river or God. And so he challenges them, who? Whom are you going to serve? And the problem is the people always ended up saying that they would serve God, but they never would. It was always skin deep. The people would be like, oh, yeah, we're going to serve God, totally serve God. But then you just read, you'd read two or three chapters later, and it wasn't, they weren't doing that at all. There was no follow through. It was a skin deep reaction. And God, back to the verse, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And this really is kind of the crux of this idea of the new covenant. So when we're talking about the new covenant, it's in their minds and written on their hearts. The new covenant brings inner transformation. The law of God was no longer only external. God would change the minds and hearts of those connected to him with the new covenant. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse uh, 3626, I don't, uh, Jordan, I don't have a slide for this one, so don't worry about it. And I will give you a new heart, and the new spirit I will put in you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. When we were talking, I, I, as we were making reference earlier to the different places in Ezekiel, it talks about this, this moment uh, of this change. And even Ezekiel is saying, I'm going to give you a new heart. Because the people were living a hard-hearted life. And then Paul echoes this idea in 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, and he says, And you will show 
and, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You see, Paul in, in 2 Corinthians, he's writing because the people were like, well, we need a letter of recommendation from you. And he's like, no. He says, I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know that you're hearing the truth because you were preaching the fulfillment of the new covenant. Because, again, it's written on your hearts. The old covenant was written on stone. This new covenant is going to be written on our hearts. I have a tattoo. Some of you guys have tattoos. Think about tattoos. They're kind of permanent. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to get rid of a tattoo. And, and even if you do um, go through the different types of surgeries to get it, oftentimes there's still a shadow of that. Why? Because a tattoo is permanent on your flesh. So when we think about this idea, well, as a... <laughs> As a disclaimer, that's why you should really think through your tattoo before you get it. Um, but what God is saying is, I'm going to write this covenant on their hearts. When you think about a tattoo, I know for myself, when I thought about my tattoo, I sat with the idea for over six months before I had it put on my skin. Why? Because I wanted to make sure that what I was getting put on myself had meaning. It had significance. This new covenant, if it's tattooed on your heart, it should have significance. You see, what God's saying is that, that the old covenant was superficial. It was done outside of the body. It was done through actions and reactions. But this new covenant, it's happening in here. It's happening in your heart, which should change everything about you. Because it's in you. It is you. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the disconnect. I was thinking about, in, um, I think it's John chapter 4. I'm probably wrong on the, on the chapter, but it's in, in John when Jesus is ministering to the woman at the well. And they're having a theological discussion. And it comes down to a moment where it says, there will be a point in which the people will worship me in spirit and in truth. And then because they were having a discussion about the temple and the tabernacle, and he's like, no, 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 no. The location isn't going to be the point. It's the intent, and which is going to matter. I mean, we're in a bank, so. And then God, God says, continued in the passage, he says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The new covenant also features a greater intimacy with God that was not available with the old in the Old Covenant. You see, the Old Covenant, there was a separation. When you talked about the tabernacle, there was a clear, a clear delineation between the inner, the inner court and what was outside of it. And as I was thinking about this passage, and I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, I thought back to um, how the people got scared at God talking to Moses on Mount Sinai. And if you, re if you reread that passage, they're like, you know what? We're kind of freaked out right now, Moses. So you go back up, you talk to God, and then you come back and talk to us. But God was trying to bring them in closer. Remember, God was calling them to be a people, a, a, a nation of priests. But they were so scared to actually enter into what God was calling them. They're like, no, 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 I'm scared. And that made me think of the idea of scared 
made me think of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. And then um, I'm going to read it in which Susan's uh, talking to Mr. Beaver. Aslan is a lion? The lion? The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he'd be, he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall fel- feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I'll tell you. God's not calling you to a safe life as a Christian. Your life as a Christian should look different than the world. God is not... Well, God refers to himself as a lion in Scripture. And so when when C.S. Lewis wrote the book uh, of Chronicles of Narnia, he's writing it as an allegory of Jesus Christ. And so when he talks about Aslan as a lion... Is he safe? No, but he's good and he's the king. And so when you think about this idea of how we connect with the new covenant, God wants to have a relationship with us, but again, he's having a standard. This is all about trying to get back what was lost in the garden. When it talks about I will be their people and they will be mine, We're going back to what was lost in the garden because there was that forever relationship, or not that forever, that intimate relationship between Adam and Eve and God. And so when we're talking about this new covenant, when we're talking about the tearing down of the wall of the tabernacle of the old covenant, and we have the new, we have that new relationship. The best, uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon said this, the best way to make a man keep a law is to make him love the lawgiver. To make him love the lawgiver. So I'm going long today, um, and I'm going to continue to preach, but I actually want to take a, 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 a moment here, and I want to have the service host uh, grab the elements for communion, and we're going to pass out. And we're, Go ahead, Dan, come on up. We're going to actually pass out communion today. We're going to do communion. Um, if you've been raised in the church, um, we're going to go a little old school with communion today. Uh, we're going to pass out the, the cracker, um, and we're going to pass out the... Uh, cup, do just hold them. Just take. We're just gonna hold them until we're until I we actually do it together as a group. This past year, I've thought a lot about communion. I don't know why it's been a recurring theme in some of the things I've read. Um, I've actually tied communion directly to, I think, three messages that I can think of. Um, We take communion every single week here at Almond Church. Um, And just as a disclaimer, you do not need to be a member of this church to take communion. Um, We do just ask that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And if you don't know what you believe, you don't have to take communion with us. I just would like you to hold the elements of communion in your hand while we kind of summarize and we close out this message. So Jesus said, um, I, I'm just going to wait till we get to the piece of the communion. But this idea of communion, it's a memorial. It's a remember of what Jesus Christ did. I just got married this past year, and a symbol for marriage is your ring. And you wear your ring daily. Not 
Not because it looks pretty. I don't like jewelry. I don't. But I wear a ring daily to remind myself of the promise I made to Amy. And I wear, and a ring symbolizes other people that I've entered into an agreement with someone else of my love and my commitment to that person. So when we enter into communion, we're taking a moment to remember that commitment to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ came to fulfill the requirements of the old covenant. He was that perfect sacrifice that they had been looking for the entire time. Jesus Christ, by dying on the cross, fulfilled all the requirements of the old covenant, and in that moment, brought the new covenant to, into initiation. That what was promised all the way back in Jeremiah 31, Jesus fulfilled when he died on the cross. So everything that they were trying to figure out in Exodus 19, all that give and take, Jesus says, I got it covered. So when we take communion every week, you should take a moment and remember that. And I, I want to challenge you. There's a, I'm going to read a passage out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, verses 23 through 26. Jordan, I actually think I have a slide for this. I have this almost memorized verbatim, but I've done communion for a couple of years in front of people, and I've read this a lot. I would challenge you to maybe not memorize it verbatim, but have an idea of what it says. Paul is talking about communion. He's talking to this church because they were taking communion in a wrong way. And so Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, and that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The word proclaim there, by the way, can be translated um, to testify or to preach. So when we take a moment and we celebrate communion, I know a lot of times like when I was growing up, church it was very somber. Oh, we're taking communion. But the more I think about communion, it's a celebration. Now, I'm not going to get up here and click my heels and dance and spin around and, you know, bust out the glow sticks. Um, sorry. Um, but it's a celebration. Jesus is saying, this is my body that is broken for you. Jesus is saying, I am willingly laying down my life for you. Remember that. Then when he takes the cup and he says, this is the covenant in my blood. And he's saying that I paid for the old covenant by dying and shedding my blood. And this is the moment which now it is written on your hearts. So everyone bow your heads and close your eyes. Today, I don't know where you're at spiritually with Jesus Christ. But I do want to encourage you just to take a moment. Because Paul does challenge us to examine yourselves before you take communion. Just take a moment and be honest with God. As we're talking about the, this grand idea of covenants, I want you to think about how much God loves you.
to the point that since Genesis, he's been trying and has been working towards total redemption and restoration. He set up patterns throughout the Old Testament showing us, showing his people the need to follow him. Giving an education in his love. And then Jesus Christ came to fulfill all the requirements of the Old Covenant. So today, will you take a moment with me and take the, take the bread And remember that Jesus willingly sacrificed his life for you. Go ahead and take the bread. And then it says, in the same manner, during dinner, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant of my new blood. Do this in remembrance of me. As we take communion every single week, and we take this giant eagle grape juice let us remember that we get to celebrate Jesus every single day we get to celebrate Jesus and have a relationship with him that for generation for millennia they did not they didn't have the opportunity to have the intimacy that we have with Jesus Christ they didn't have the opportunity to spend seeking his face the way that we do that was only the priest but now God has invited us to be a nation of priests, a royal priesthood. And as you take this cup, it says, you proclaim his death until he comes again. It's a challenge as well as a celebration. Are you living a life that proclaims his life? Are you living a life that proclaims the changed heart that you should have? And it said should because just as just as the Israelites kept saying, oh yeah, we're going to follow God. We do it all the time. I was listening to a sermon recently, and the guy said, sometimes we treat Jesus like a jacket. We put him on when we come to church, and then the moment church is over, we hang him back on the hook. I challenge you today, as we take the cup, to remember that new covenant that should be written on your hearts. Will you take the cup? Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. And as we look at this, as we continue to look at these ideas of theology, as we continue to look and study you, I pray, Father, that you'll help us to get a better understanding of your love, to get a better understanding of your grace and your mercy. And I pray, Father, that for each of us, that we will have changed our heart of stone and now have a heart of flesh. That we have put the new, the new covenant on our hearts, not on just stone tablets. Help us to live for you every day. In your holy and precious name.